Jesus, thank you for uh, tonight. Thank you for giving us the, the opportunity to study your word again and uh, the implications of it and what it, what it has to say to us about our, um, our lives in this world. And we pray you would give us your wisdom, uh, show us by your spirit how we ought to respond to the things we see in your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we are talking tonight about the seventh commandment, which is um, related to marriage and human sexuality. And so uh, we're going to cover a lot of topics tonight on, on, these, uh, on these issues, kind of the broader issues related to these things. And um, I think you'll find that it's pretty timely. A lot of this deals with stuff we're, we're seeing culturally right now. Um, and so I, I hope to, I had to kind of pick and choose like what to spend the majority of time on versus things that we have to kind of gloss over quickly. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm trying to, I'll try to give you a resource for every section, uh, at least most of the sections to, uh, if you're interested in, if, if you feel like I'm not able to cover it to the, to the depth you'd like, I'm giving you book recommendations. So if you want to study further, uh, hopefully you guys can find those. But um, the seventh commandment is simply this, you shall not commit adultery. So uh, it's from Exodus 20, verse 14. And the English word for adultery is, is pretty accurate to what the Hebrew word gets at. And the, the word simply means voluntary sexual intercourse between a married person and a partner other than the lawful spouse. So uh, just on the surface of, of the command, we're being prohibited from voluntary sexual activity uh, with people we're not married to in that. Uh, and adultery, of course, has the connotation that at least one or both partners are married. Um, but this will obviously have a broader, broader meaning than just this. Um, this. This actually is pretty much just what the Hebrew means. Um, there's a passage in Leviticus 20, verse 10, that, that explains this. Um, it says, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall, be, shall surely be put to death. Now, that's the old covenant, right? We're not, we don't live under the old covenant, um, thankfully, in some ways. And um, there was lots of things that brought the death penalty in those days, but uh, adultery was one of them. And, and so that shows that that's the, the heart of the, the word adultery is to uh, go and sleep with someone who is married to someone else or while you yourself are married. Uh, Proverbs 6.32 talks about it this way. He who commits adultery lacks sense. Uh, he who does it destroys himself. And the context of this passage, which we'll look at a little bit later on, we will look at the, the broader passage, but it says, uh, he who goes into his neighbor's wife, and then it warns that none who touches her will go unpunished. So the idea of um, going um, to have an, a sexual encounter with your, your neighbor's wife or an, a woman you're not married to, if, if you're a married man or vice versa, uh, is the heart of this on the surface level. Um, the moral evil of adultery is affirmed in some of the narrative passages of Scripture, too. So there's a couple of stories about adultery. There's a, a lot of them, actually, in the Bible. Um, um, amazingly, people back then messed, messed around with this stuff as much as we do. So we, uh, we can at least have some, I guess, weird comfort from that. But um, the wife of Potiphar in the story in Genesis 39... Uh, we, you're probably familiar with this. Joseph is in Potiphar's house. He's working as 
He was actually sold into slavery there, and Potiphar's wife tries to, attempt, uh, tries to entice him to sleep with her. Joseph wasn't married. She was, and he rejected her offer uh, and basically just said, how, how can I do a great wickedness and sin against God? So Joseph responded uh, admirably in that moment. Uh, King David, not so much. Um, in his life, many, many years later, in 2 Samuel 11, we read about King David's affair uh, or com- committing adultery with Bathsheba, who was the wife of Uriah. And Uriah was off fighting a, a war for King David, and uh, David was a fool and was hanging around where he shouldn't be hanging around and ultimately commits adultery with Bathsheba. She gets pregnant from the, the affair, and he ends up having Uriah killed uh, or kind of arranges for him to die in battle, repositioning him in the battlefield um, so that he would be most likely to be killed. And, um, and so, yeah, it was, it was a pretty, pretty wicked thing. Uh, and we'll talk a little more about David as well. But the command against adultery is uh, reaffirmed a number of times in the New Testament as well. So one of the key things as we look at this is that if, if something is talked about in the Old Testament and then reaffirmed in the New Testament, it's, we can be safe to assume it's still morally binding on us as, as Christians, uh, that we still have an obligation to maintain this in our lives. Um, so you can see Matthew 19.18 talks about this, Romans 2.22, Romans 13.9, James 2.11. These are all just some of the passages that, that actually talk about the issue of adultery in the New Testament and forbid it. Um, so we actually even see Jesus taking this commandment, specifically the commandment against adultery in the Sermon on the Mount. He, he applies it more broadly than just the act of adultery. He, he says, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Um, just before that, he, he quotes this commandment that says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Uh, and so, so he applies the, the commandment, you shall not commit adultery, even further than just the physical act of adultery to the intention of the heart. That's really, and that's true of every sin. And that's, that's one of, this is just an example of, of how that works in the world. Uh, Jesus talks about the command to not murder, uh, either just before this or just after this. I can't remember exactly where it comes in order, but uh, Jesus says, you've heard it said you shall not commit you shall not murder, but I say to you, anyone who hates his brother is already guilty of murder. And so he brings it to the heart level. And so it's here, too, that the, the issue of adultery is not just purely keeping ourselves from the physical uh, action, although we must do that, too. It's also guarding our hearts more deeply than that. Um, the broader purpose of this command is uh, to protect marriage, right? So most of the the things that we're seeing in the Ten Commandments after the first four uh, really have to do with protecting other people, one another, institutions, right? So protecting the institution of human authority is the root of honor your father and mother. Uh, the, you know, protecting people's property we'll talk about next next week when it says you shall not steal. Um, that It's getting to the heart of protecting these these things, and so the the heart of protecting marriage is at the root of this commandment. 
We're gonna, so we're going to spend a, a good chunk of time tonight talking about marriage and, um, and adultery in, in some detail, like walking through what these, these things are taught about in the scriptures. But we're also going to get into some other things that are broader than this. Like with all, all these classes, we've started with kind of the foundational issue and then built out from there the implications uh, and there's a lot of implications to this commandment. It has to do with marriage, of course, but it also has to do with human sexuality in general, uh, which gets us into territory like uh, divorce or pornography and, and LGBTQ issues. Um, and so we're going to deal with those things. Now, there's probably a lot more that we can talk about, but man, we've only got two hours or so to do this. So this is going to be probably more than we can really realistically handle. Um, but I want to address these things because I think the issues of uh, divorce, pornography, and LGBT stuff is really on the forefront of, of what a lot of us are thinking about, worried about. Uh, how do we think about these things as Christians? Um, they're pervasive. All of these things are very pervasive right now. So, uh, so we're going to try to do that tonight. Um, I, I want to acknowledge here that there are so many issues that are related to these, this category uh, that and, and just in, in general with marriage and human sexuality, it feels like something's popping up all the time that we're like just not prepared for and uh, don't really know how to address. And it's like we're playing whack-a-mole, you know, just got this thing pops up, you try to hit it, it pops up somewhere else. Um, that's a hard strategy. If we're, if we're, as Christians, if we're constantly just trying to hit the things that are popping up right in front of us, um, that, that can get really chaotic. So I think the better strategy for Christians just generally is let's, let's actually understand and teach and be clear about what God teaches about marriage um, and human sexuality. What is his intention for these so that when we see what's contrary to that, then we can, uh, we can identify it and we can ultimately reject it as, a, as something acceptable for us. In, in the Christian life, but that's what we're going to do. So I want to spend the, the first part of our time like defining marriage and really digging into the positive side of marriage um, and positively like what God says about it and how he values it. And, and then we'll, we'll go on from there. So the question is, what is marriage? Um, I'm, I'll try to define it for you and uh, we'll, we'll talk quite a bit about this. And, Here's what marriage is. Marriage is, um, it's always pretty much always been understood to be the legal union of a man and a woman as husband and wife. Okay, that's been the historic definition of marriage forever. Virtually every culture and society throughout all of human history. Um, there is no society in all of recorded history ever legalizing, permitting, or redefining marriage as a same-sex relationship um, until the 21st century. Uh, so that started with the Netherlands in 2001. That nation first legalized marriage, uh, defining it as marriage. Now, again, we're not saying that there was no homosexuality or struggles with same-sex issues before the 21st century. Of course there were. Uh, it goes way, way back. Um, and so that's not the issue. What I'm talking about is the specific redefining of marriage as a relationship between a man and a man or a woman and a woman, um, that's a brand new thing. That's a 22-year-old thing in the, in the course of all of human history. 
that's that's insane, actually, that we're that we've gotten to the point where 22 years of, of human history, it's it's been defined. And actually, in the United States, it's been since 2015 uh, with Obergefell versus Hodge, that Supreme Court decision um, legalized the idea of marriage. Uh, we're not talking about like civil unions. Those existed long before that. Uh, legal protections, fine, like whatever. But to to redefine marriage is a is a radically new thing in our culture. Uh, so I'm working off of the historic definition of marriage. I'm not talking about marriage in the context of a same-sex relationship. Uh, I believe the biblical teaching on marriage is one man, one woman. Uh, united in a legal union, so as husband and wife. So that's the working definition that we're going to go with uh, tonight as I explain this. Uh, so I, I needed to clarify that because, you know, marriage has just become so convoluted since, the, since all of these decisions have come down in the last uh, 10 to 20 years. Um, so we're swimming in those waters, and it's good to just get in front of us on what we're talking about. Okay, so in Scripture... Marriage is seen as a lifelong relationship between a man and a woman that is established by a solemn covenant before God. Um, The prophet Malachi speaks of marriage as a covenant. He uses that word uh, to which God is a witness. So that's from Malachi 2.14. And the the passage says, "But, but you say. So Malachi is addressing this question that is being asked by the people of Israel. And they're asking, why does God not accept our offerings? That, that's what they're struggling with. And so Malachi is going to tell them why God is not accepting their offerings. He says, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So in this passage, covenant means a solemn agreement establishing a marriage relationship between a man and a woman. It's, it's a solemn agreement before God. Um, in this agreement, men and women, the man and the woman promise each other that they will be faithful to this marriage for a lifetime. And they're called, uh, they actually call God to witness their promise and to hold them accountable for being faithful to it. Um, I, I do a lot of weddings. I've done a lot of weddings as a pastor um, as a member of the clergy, as the, the state would call me. Um, and, I, and I try to really reinforce this. Like Duke is in premarital counseling with me right now with Janae and um, very excited to, to do their wedding this summer. I'm really excited for you guys. Um, you're going to swim in this for, for months now, so just, just buckle up. Uh, but marriage ceremonies are like they're seen as such flippant things in our culture right now. And I try to really fight against that because it's, it's an extremely serious thing that happens when somebody gets married, um, when two people get married. Marriage ceremonies re- recognize two things, at, at the very least, um, at least these two things. The public nature of the marriage, um, which, which at least requires legal registration of the marriage in a public, uh, publicly accessible record. So a uh, a marriage license, a public recognition of marriage, so that society will know that this man and woman are husband and wife. And secondly, it recognizes God's presence as a witness to the wedding vows. These, these are fundamentally 
the things that are included in a marriage. They are, it's a public recognition of this relationship. Now, public doesn't mean it has to be the biggest thing in the world with thousands of people or anything like that. It can be a small, intimate gathering, but it needs to be somewhat of a publicly accessible thing, whether that's through the marriage license being public record or whether that just be through the ceremony, big or small, uh, that, that is a part of marriage. God's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hone in on that in a few minutes a little more, but the second thing that is included in every marriage ceremony, or should be, uh, is God's presence in that moment to witness these vows. And, I, and actually, I love the, uh, Anglican, uh, the Anglican Book of Common Prayer. Uh, if you've ever been to a wedding, a Christian wedding, uh, you've probably heard these words said or some variation of them. I don't recite these uh, verbatim as it is on the screen here, but th- this uh, Book of Common Prayer um, statement at the beginning of a wedding ceremony, I read a variation of this, but it recognizes these two things. We have come together here in the sight of God. It's God's here with us. He's watching this. And in the presence of this congregation, there's a public acknowledgement that this wedding is happening. To join together this man and this woman in holy matrimony, which is an honorable state of life instituted in the beginning by God himself, signifying to us the spiritual union that is between Christ and the church. Um, that, that statement or some variation very close to it should be, I think, included in every wedding ceremony. Um, I don't have any memories of what was said at my wedding because I was only focused on one thing. But, but I do, I'm, a, I'm sure it was said. I don't know, probably. Uh, either way, um, when I do weddings, when I officiate weddings, I make sure that this is, this is happening. Because um, that's what's happening. We're in the sight of God. And we're in the presence of this congregation. Those two things have always been historically uh, necessities to a marriage um, and what, what a marriage actually, how it begins, I should say. Um, one factor about marriage is that it changes a person's status before God and before society. Um, it does this not only uh, because the husband and wife uh, perform these vows or or recite these vows of mutual faithfulness in the presence of God. And they're asking God to hold them to account regularly uh, regarding, excuse me, these vows, but also because God himself acts during the wedding ceremony. In the context of discussing the nature of marriage, Jesus says this, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Um, that's also a phrase that in every wedding ceremony I do, I, I say these words because this is what is happening, that God is joining this man and this woman together into marriage. In other words, when a marriage occurs, it's not just a human ceremony. It's um, something deeply spiritual. Uh, it's something, something that we, we don't necessarily even fully grasp what's happening is happening. God is joining together a husband and wife into this marriage. Their union is something that Jesus said God has joined together. So God does that work. So after the, the wedding ceremony occurs, everybody thinks of these, these two people as husband and wife, right? This changes their status, not just before God, but before 
one another before society. These two people are no longer single. They're no longer eligible to date other people. At least they shouldn't be, right? And we always get kind of grossed out by situations where that's not the case, right? And we should. It's like, ew, what are you doing? This is not right. Um, we all have that innate understanding of this because there's a, there's a change that happens both spiritually between them and God and between society and them. So in the United States and a lot of other Western societies, at least, um, the legal status of these people change as well. So if one spouse dies, the remaining spouse has inheritance rights that no one else has. If one spouse becomes ill, the other spouse has authority and responsibility to care for the one who is sick, to make decisions for them medically. If, if children are born to them, they have a responsibility and authority for raising their children. There's, there's a, an actual tangible change societally that happens in this relationship. Uh, it's not just spiritual. It's also societal. Um, so that, that goes back to this, that some kind of public awareness is necessary for a marriage. Some kind of public awareness. Again, it doesn't have to be this big, crazy thing, but um, because marriage changes the way a society regards a man and a woman, weddings mentioned in the Bible were often, if not almost always, accompanied by a public celebration. So this is not a new thing. The idea of celebrating a wedding is publicly is not new. It's, it's go, it goes all the way back to Genesis. Um, one example is when Jacob married Rachel. It says Laban, who was Rachel's father, gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. Uh, but then if you keep reading, it's, it gets a little sticky there because he actually switches the wife on him and it's not a good situation. Uh, but the point is, I'm not going to speak into that necessarily. That was a messed up thing. Um, and it's supposed to like be messed up, messed up, right? We're just like, okay, that was bad. Um, but he had this public celebration uh, of a feast for these two. Um, we see before that, I think it's with uh, Isaac um, and uh, Rebecca, that their, their wedding ceremony took place in Sarah, his mother's tent. Like, I don't exactly know how all this happens, but there, was, there wasn't this huge, massive party with all the people gathered there, as far as we're told in the scriptures. Maybe there was, it's just maybe omitted. But there was at least a public recognition that their parents were there. There was probably some, some you know, immediate family in the, in the tent. There was a public thing. It wasn't just them saying that they're married. Um, similarly, in the New Testament, the wedding at Cana in Galilee in John 2, where Jesus performs his first miracle, uh, that was a large public event. It was such a large event that they ran out of wine, and Jesus had to turn water into wine to keep the party going for a while, and it was a big thing. Uh, so Old Testament, New Testament, we see weddings are public affairs. Um, now, in modern society, uh, the need for this public awareness of marriage is reflected in uh, at least the requirement that a couple have a marriage license issued by the local government authority, typically the county that you're getting married in um, or will live in after you're married either way. And then they'll have the marriage then is validated by someone who is recognized by the governing authority as having the authority to perform this wedding. So that could be a judge, a justice of the peace, a member of the clergy, 
captain at sea uh, can of a ship can even officiate uh, ceremonies. So uh, th- th- it's it's there's this public recognition of a wedding that happens either through uh, the the state acknowledging the marriage. Uh, so what happens in in when I when I do weddings is I have the the married couple have to go and or the couple getting married have to go and apply for a wedding license, a marriage license. They sign that, they get that checked off, and then they hand that to me the night before the wedding. I hold on to that. I take care of it. I get the signatures that are needed after the ceremony is completed. I sign it as the member of the clergy, and I mail it in. And it's it's. I've never had one returned, so that's good. I'm I'm on I'm batting a thousand on this so far. So, so that's good. But. But I'm, in my role as a pastor, I'm considered uh, one of those people who has been given a granted authority, or not, not that that means a whole lot from, from my point of view, but it, they recognize that members of the clergy and others, judges and justices of the peace, um, need to validate that this wedding happened. And, and so I have to tell them where it happened, when it happened, sign my name to it. You know, it's, it's a thing. There's a, there's a little bit of paperwork involved in that's okay. Uh, I think that's, that's how, at least in our modern society, how this is playing out. So the modern notion that a couple does not need a piece of paper to be married, I hear that a lot. We don't need a piece of paper to say we're, we're married. It's like, no, you actually do. Like, that's actually you do. Like, you, you, can, you can say you're in love and not have a piece of paper, but to be married, you're, you do have to have a piece of paper. That is part of the deal. And people will say, well, we're married in our hearts. And that's just an excuse for them fornicating, you know? I mean, it really is. Like, I don't mean to be crass, but that's, that is not marriage. It's not backed up by the definition of marriage. Marriage is a public recognition in the sight of God between those people committing, vowing to be married. So that's, that's an important part of this. And I know it's, a lot of people treat it very, you know, loosely and, uh, I don't think we should. I think that's, that's the point. This is a serious thing that we're, we're doing. Uh, next, another point of marriage is that sexual intercourse alone does not constitute a marriage. So in the Old Testament era, I, and I don't know a lot of people today who think it does, but I just thought this was, this was an important point because in the Old Testament era, if an unmarried couple has sexual intercourse, the law of Moses requires them to get married. But there is, a, there is a way out. The woman's father can refuse to give his permission. And so when, if that happens, then they're not married. And the man is actually compelled to pay a fine and uh, you know, has to go through the, the legal process because it was considered a crime uh, in, the, in the Mosaic law. So that sexual intercourse alone is not the same thing as a marriage. In the New Testament, Jesus affirms this too with, his conversation with the woman at the well in John 4. He surprises her as he talks to her about how much he knows about the details of her life. He says, you have had five husbands and the one that you now have is not your husband. So simply put, she was living with a man that she was not married to. And Jesus doesn't say, well, because you're living with him, you're just automatically married to him. And he specifically says, you're He's not your husband. Why is he not her husband? Well, because they didn't have a wedding ceremony. (laughs) They weren't married. And so Jesus is telling her that this man that she's living with 
uh, is not her husband. So sexual r- relationships are not the only thing that are, that's in view here. But sexual unity is an essential component to marriage, with some rare exceptions. Um, Jesus connects the physical union of a husband and wife in marriage to their being joined together in marriage by God. So he he makes this uh, connection in a conversation with the Pharisees about divorce, which we will look at a little bit later on in more depth. But um, Matthew 19, 3 through 6, it says the Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. That's a quotation from Genesis. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So in this expression, um, so they are no longer two, but one flesh, the word so is important because this is the connecting word. This is making the point that Jesus is trying to get at. He's saying that because of their sexual union, they are no longer two, but they're one flesh. There, there's an essential unity that happens in marriage through the sexual relationship. Um, and so it's, while that's not the, the only thing that matters uh, in a marriage, it's not, the, it's not even the primary thing, um, it, is a, it is an important part of the marriage relationship. Sexual union between a husband and wife is thought to be an essential part of their marriage bond. In some cases, uh, in some countries, I think, I think it's still the case in some states, uh, the UK still has it set up this way, where if you, can, if you get married and you want to annul the wedding and say, well, we didn't have any sexual intercourse, then the wedding's annulled. It's not. You don't have to go through the whole divorce process because they're not, they don't consider it a consummated marriage. Um, but on the other hand, there are unusual cases um, or, or less frequent cases where a marriage occurs and a couple is unable to have a sexual relationship. Either that might be advanced age, it might be a physical disability. There's probably a lot of other examples. Um, but in that case, we shouldn't just assume that the, the wedding or the marriage doesn't matter anymore, or that it's not a, a true marriage. Um, there's still a spiritual unity. Uh, there's still a, a, a public promise before God. And so we don't need to see that as uh, an invalid marriage in that situation. Um, this is, I think, the most crucial point that we need to make about marriage. And it's that marriage pictures or is a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. If we don't understand this, which is clearly taught in the New Testament, then, this, then we really do miss the whole meaning of marriage. When the Apostle Paul talks about marriage in Ephesians, um, and he wants to speak about the relationship between a husband and a wife, he doesn't just go back to any random place in the Old Testament telling us that a marriage uh, is like this after sin comes into the world. What he does is he goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 before sin enters the world, which is also what Jesus does. He, they, they all go back to the creation pattern as they speak about marriage. But what Paul says is this, in verse um, chapter 5, 31 and 32 of Ephesians, he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So same passage quoted by Jesus. 
And then he says this, here's his comment on it. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So this Christ-church relationship that exists in marriage reflects the fundamental reason that marriage matters and shouldn't be treated flippantly. It's also the reason why polygamy is not uh, something we should pursue. Um, It's also, which is not encouraged in the Old Testament and it's rejected in the New Testament. Uh, We can, I can talk for like five seconds about polygamy, but um, it's it's just not something I have a lot of time to deal with. Um, But the reason that polygamy is a problem is because Christ only has one bride. And so, a polygamous kind of marriage, weird relationship like that is, is not picturing accurately the relationship between Christ and his church. He has one church. He has one people, one, one bride. And so that's, that's why there needs to be a monogamous relationship between a husband and a wife. This is also why divorce shouldn't be pursued except for in very extreme situations, which we'll, we'll deal with a little bit tonight. But the primary reason why divorce shouldn't be just like sought immediately and the the primary thing we're driving for is because Christ doesn't abandon or leave his church. Um, And so I think that it it just shows, it shows us the the seriousness of marriage. This picture that as imperfect as our human marriages are and as, as difficult as they can be because we're married to another sinner and we're a sinner and all those things, um, there's something about the marriage relationship fundamentally that points to how Christ should love his church and how the church should respond to Christ. So that's that's really an important thing. Now, on the issue of polygamy, since I brought it up, I'll, I'll address it real quick because it always comes up as a question of, well, didn't the Old Testament people have a bunch of wives? Weren't they all polygamists? And um, the answer is that, yes, there was polygamy in the Old Testament, for sure. Um, but the problem is, is that, um, God never, ever commands that. And in fact, there are places in the Old Testament where he forbids it. Uh, he forbids it particularly among the kings of Israel. In Deuteronomy, when he's writing his law to Moses, he specifically tells the kings, the future kings, who weren't even in the picture for hundreds of years probably up to this point, um, he prepares the people of Israel for how the kings ought to behave. And it speci- he specifically says the king should not have more than one wife. Um, and so, of course, the kings broke that from David all the way onward. Um, but here's the other thing is we, we learn um, as much from the outcomes as we do from what's explicitly taught. The outcomes of polygamy is always bad. It's never presented positively. It never actually turns out well for any of these guys. And in fact, it, it's what ultimately brings ruin um, when Solomon starts to marry wives from other nations and brings uh, idolatry in with it. So it's, it's not, in the Bible, even in the Old Testament, it's never presented as like a good thing. Um, it was, I guess you could say it was permissible in the sense that God didn't like destroy every polygamist that was there. He didn't just strike them all dead. But there were lots of things people did that were wrong that God didn't strike them dead for, right? So I don't think by implication we should say that God approves of polygamy. Um, I think the, uh, there's a case on the other side that says he doesn't. And when you get to the New Testament, Paul clearly teaches that um, at least an elder in the church cannot be a polygamist. Um, and so there is, there's a clear standard that Christian maturity 
uh, does not look like polygamy. So take that for what it is, but um, there you go, just in case you were concerned about that. Um, one more point on marriage here is that um, the Bible teaches that some people will not be married. And, uh, and I think it's, it's important to note this because the church tends to really emphasize marriage and for a good, good reason. Uh, but sometimes we do so to the detriment of single people. And I know there's a number of you in here who are not married and may get married someday and may not get married someday. But I, I want you to know that the Bible teaches that not all are called to that. And it's okay if you're not. Um, the Bible recognizes that not everyone will be married. Uh, and every, even among those who are married, some will be widowed or divorced and therefore become single again in their life. But in 1 Corinthians 7, 7 through 40, uh, which is a long section, Paul basically articulates the advantages of both marriage and singleness. He's, um, he's talking about the gift of God in both of those. We also see Jesus was never married. Paul was not married at the time of his ministry, at least, although there's some, some debate that he might have been married prior to his conversion. Uh, again, no proof of that, so it's not really worth worrying about. Um, but, you know, these, these eggheads up there, they, they think these things. Um, so it's fine. Uh, but he certainly wasn't married at the time of his ministry. Um, Jesus and Paul are great examples of godly singleness that, that couples with effectiveness in ministry. And so you don't have to be married to be effective in ministry. In fact, there's an argument that Paul makes that you are less effective in ministry if you're married. And so that's, that's something to consider. Um, uh, Paul says in verse 7 of chapter 7 that each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. And in the context, he's talking about the gift of marriage and the gift of singleness. So both remaining single or becoming married are morally permissible choices. It depends on the life that God has called you to live. Um, and so I, I just want to affirm that for, for all of you. And, and it's important that we all recognize that not everyone is called to marriage. And that's okay. God has a plan for each of us. Okay, uh, I won't be taking questions until the very end. So if you do have questions, just jot them down or make a mental note because I'm just going to try to blast through a lot of material. Um, but I want to I address the issue of adultery because that's obviously the commandment. You shall not commit adultery. Having looked at the value that God places on marriage, I think it's clear that we can see that adultery is a, a terrible thing and, it, and it's prohibited in scripture for a very clear reason. So when the seventh commandment says you shall not commit adultery in Exodus twenty fourteen, that's also affirmed in Matthew 15, Matthew 19, Luke 18, Romans 2, Romans 13, James 2, 2 Peter 2. Um, adultery is a, a big, big problem. And we see that it, it still applies today. So let's talk about some of the reasons why it's prohibited. One is that adultery wrongly intrudes another person into the one flesh relationship of marriage. Scripture emphasizes that within a marriage, a man shall hold fast to his wife and they become one flesh. So adultery takes a third person 
and brings them into that relationship, which is contrary to God's intention uh, for unity and exclusiveness within the marriage. The book of Hebrews says, let the marriage bed be undefiled. There's a, there's a union between a husband and a wife that is reflected in the fact that they, they share a bed and that that's, there's, a, there's a marriage bed, right? There's a marriage relationship that needs to be guarded and protected. And adultery brings someone who doesn't belong into that situation in, into it. Secondly, we see that adultery wrongly pictures unfaithfulness in the relationship between Christ and the church. Um, Paul teaches that the, the marriage relationship refers to Christ and the church, right? So when a husband commits adultery, he is portraying Christ as being unfaithful to his people, abandoning them and not keeping his covenant with them. That's, that's a really terrible thing to picture in the world, right? That Christ would do this to his people because he won't. He doesn't. On the other hand, if a wife commits adultery, it's a picture of the church worshiping another God, being unfaithful to Christ. And both of these portrayals are deeply dishonoring to Jesus. We also see on a practical front too, not just the theological front, that adultery destroys trust within a marriage. Uh, adultery is probably the, I mean, I don't think that there's much more serious violations of a marriage promise than to commit adultery and when you promise to be faithful for your whole life to that person. So if one spouse violates that promise, the other spouse will rightly wonder whether that adulterous spouse can ever be trusted again. And if trust is destroyed within a marriage, all other aspects of the relationship become, become so much more difficult. Um, so that's, that's just a practical thing. Obviously, it, it, it's, there's meant to be a trust between a husband and wife on the deepest level, and adultery destroys that. Adultery also frequently destroys a person's entire life. Um, the warnings against adultery in Proverbs are harsh and blunt and vivid uh, in their portrayal of the destruction that adultery causes. One warning uh, against adultery portrays a man grasping hot coals and clutching them to his chest. That's from Proverbs six twenty-seven to 33. It says, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes in to his neighbor's wife. None who touch her, touches her will go unpunished. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor and his disgrace will not be wiped away. Now, when it says that his disgrace will not be wiped away, that is referring to a man or a woman who is unrepentant. It's not referring to everyone in every situation because we know that David um, uh, sought forgiveness for his adultery and he received it. So like all other sins, forgiveness for adultery is found in repentance and faith in Christ. Right? King David is the most famous adulterer in the Bible, probably perhaps ever in the world. His sin was grievous. It was wicked, it was evil, and eventually he sought grace and received it. So Psalm 51 is, is David's um, prayer of, of repentance that he expresses that's recorded for us in the scriptures. 
um, after being caught in adultery, being confronted by Nathan the prophet, and then repenting of his sins. It's important to note that David and his adultery still carried lasting consequences. His his forgiveness in Christ doesn't change the fact that he uh, did what he did and broke trust and killed a man and the baby that was conceived through the adultery died. Um, And there there were consequences uh, that he had to live with. Um, But he did receive forgiveness through repentance. And he had a restored relationship with God. He, he wasn't done. He wasn't destroyed. He wasn't, he, he wasn't even removed from his throne. He carried on uh, to continue serving the Lord in that role. But here, here's a part of what he says in, in Psalm 51. This is verse 7 through 12. He says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Think about that. He's talking, this is a prayer to God. And he's saying, God, let the bones you have broken rejoice. God broke his bones in a metaphorical way. To, to, he, he, felt, he dealt with the lasting impacts of his sin. But even in that, he can find rejoicing as God di- disciplined him. He says, hide your face uh, from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. This prayer uh, of forgiveness is one that he, he wrote. As, this is part just part of it. He wrote it as a response to the repentance he he brought to the Lord from his adulterous sin. But this is a prayer that you and I can pray in, in, in belief in Christ for no matter what sins we commit, no matter whether they're heinous or, or, or not. But this is a model for how we ought to respond to all of our sin. And adultery is a sin like all sins. Now it carries a lasting damage um, and, and it's not always going to be remedied, uh, but but it's still a sin that Christ died to save you from. Okay, let's, let's spend a little time, and I mean a little time, and I wish we could spend more time on this, but um, I want to talk about the issue of divorce and what the Bible teaches. And again, this is going to be way shallower than I wish it could be just for the sake of our time, but I will give you a, a book recommendation if you're interested in more on this. Um, so we've seen already that God's original plan for the human race, as indicated by the creation of Adam and Eve and them brought together as husband and wife, is a lifelong monogamous marriage, right? So that's what God's intention is for those who are married to live in a lifelong monogamous marriage. Jesus affirms this, as we've already seen in Matthew nineteen three through 6, um, when he's asked about divorce. And we've, we've already read this. We don't need to belabor it. This is where the Pharisees are asking him, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And then he says, well, haven't you read that God created Adam and Eve, male and female, brought them into marriage? What God has joined together, let not man separate. So in this reply, 
Jesus uh, is rebuking and correcting a first century practice of easy divorce for trivial reasons. So when they asked the question, is it lawful to divorce your wife for any cause? The reason they were asking that is because the Mishnah, which was sort of a, a, a playbook or a commentary on the Old Testament law, um, permitted it in a lot of cases for just very frivolous divorce. Now, there were primarily three schools of thought uh, among the rabbis of the first century in Jesus's day. Um, and the Pharisees were kind of in different camps, I think, on this. So there was the school or the school of thought of Shammai who said, a man may not divorce his wife unless he has found unchastity in her. So Shammai would say only for divorce, only for unfaithfulness. That's the only reason for divorce. Then there was the school of Hillel, which said that a man may divorce his wife even if she spoils a dish for him. So burns your dinner. That, like, that's crazy, right? And all the men are nodding. No, no, don't, don't be. Um, so that's obviously frivolous. It gets even more frivolous with Rabbi uh, Akaba, I think, or Akiba. He said that uh, divorce can happen even if a man finds another more fair wife than, than he has, so a better-looking wife. So again, ridiculous, right? And the, the, but these, this was the common uh, belief in the first century, and Jesus is being basically confronted by the Pharisees, and they're asking him, which school of thought do you land in here? And rather than entering into that debate... Jesus just goes back to God's original plan for marriage and says, look, we're asking the wrong question. You know, that's what Jesus is so good at. He doesn't even answer the questions they're asking. He's answering the questions that they should be asking, you know. And so he doesn't go into this debate about whether, you know, it's just adultery, whether it's just burning the, the dish or whatever. It's, he, he says, well, what is God's original plan for marriage? And he shows that that should still be or is still the ideal for God, from God for all marriages. So that's, that's one of those things. But now we, we have to acknowledge that divorce is a reality in the world. Jesus acknowledges that divorce is a reality. Um, and he says elsewhere that, that Moses permitted certificates of divorce due to the hardness of your heart. Um, there, there were, there, but there were situations in which divorce um, were, was permissible. And Jesus gives specifically one, and then I believe the Apostle Paul gives us a second in the New Testament. Uh, now, here's what I'll say on this, that these are permissible reasons for divorce, but they're not requirements for divorce. That, that Christ can heal these things too, if he chooses to, and if, if that's his will. But we do live in the real world, and the Bible deals with the real world, a sinful world, a broken world. And so the reasons that the scriptures give as permissible reasons for divorce would be adultery, which Jesus addresses in Matthew 19. And then the second one would be abandonment or desertion. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 7, where if an unbelieving spouse leaves the marriage, there, there's, there's an understanding in Paul's mentality here that a believing if there's two people in a marriage and one of them's not a Christian, the other is, he's saying that there's a, there's a chance that your unbelieving spouse, your, your non-Christian spouse may leave. And Paul then seems to indicate that divorce is permissible in that case. Uh, what he says is, the technical thing he says is, uh, or the more literal thing he says, I should say, is 
that you are you are free or you're you're not under under the law. So it's it's one of those things that like he's he's sort of alluding to the idea of divorce. Um, so some people even debate whether this is an actual biblical reason, but I, I do think it is. Um, I think that as you read it, it, it seems to go that direction. So adultery and abandonment. Um, the first would be a breach of the marriage vows towards the sexual union between a husband and wife. And the second breach is a physical, a breach of the physical union between a husband and wife, where a spouse physically just dips out, leaves, abandons the situation. Neither of these reasons are requirements. The Bible never requires divorce. Um, in fact, you, you see examples of the opposite of that. Uh, in, in the case of Hosea, Hosea was a prophet that was told by God he needed to marry a prostitute. And he married a prostitute as a woman named Gomer. And, and they, um, you know, she was very unfaithful to him. She abandoned him. She ran away from the marriage. And God continued to tell Hosea to keep pursuing her, bring her back, find, find her, allow her to come back into your home. Those things were meant to show. It was a, it was a living parable, as cruddy as it had to be for Hosea to live, in, live through it. God was using Hosea's and, and Gomer's marriage to picture the relationship God has with his people, which is that he is the, the spouse who's continually pursuing a wayward, sinful people. Um, so that's an amazing thing. But, but the Bible doesn't place that on every single person. Just because it was placed on Hosea doesn't mean every other spouse who's abandoned has to just hang in there. You know, there seems to be a permissibility there. And then, of course, adultery is is permitted by Jesus uh, because it is such a breach of, of marriage trust that sometimes you just can't, you can't get past it, right? And there's, there's a real dynamic there. So outside of those two things, um, the issue of divorce gets a little sticky uh, as far as if there's other things, um, other reasons. Um, it's, it's not always a, well, I should say the scriptures are very, clear that there's just these two things but maybe there are some other things we can think about at least as we live in a fallen world um so are there other legitimate biblical grounds for divorce this is a this is a matter of real debate among christians um some would say that repeated instances of physical abuse uh, should be seen as an additional legitimate ground for divorce uh Others would respond that physical abuse is not a legitimate reason for divorce, although separation, um, church discipline, confrontation, police action, court orders, things to get the, the abused party into safety absolutely are necessary, but that divorce is not permissible even in that situation. Um, these are really complicated things only because it's, so, it's just so emotionally difficult and and you don't want to see a person suffering and languishing and in abuse whether it's physical emotional spiritual and there are lots of forms of abuse the problem is is that we have to be careful not to walk down a slope that we're just going to slide through and and then everything can be defined as abuse that's where it gets really tricky is like how do you i mean physical abuse is a clear there's a clear line right hitting striking injuring physically like that's obvious and we can kind of see it and we can kind of wrap our heads around it 
emotional abuse is so much harder to quantify. And that's, I'm not suggesting that that means it's not a thing. It is a thing, and it's a terrible thing. But it's just a lot harder for like third parties and people outside, and even the law, law enforcement, to really like. We just don't have like a clear way to approach this stuff, and that's what that's what makes it so difficult. So, um, I don't have a good answer. I know adultery and desertion are are two clear, permissible things. I can say say that. Um, I I think there's a case that you can make that. Um, ongoing unrepentant abuse is a form of desertion and, and a form of breaking of the marriage vow. I think you could maybe get there. But again, that's like, it's a little hard. It's a little hard to quantify. So when, when you inevitably, as I've, I've met many women and have worked with many women in physical abusive and mental abusive situations, what should we do? How should we help them as fellow Christians? Well, we need to get them to safety. That's, that's the most crucial thing. Uh, we can sort through the issues of divorce and whether it's permissible in time. But we're, not, we're, never, we're never to encourage a woman who is being battered, uh, who is in a place of danger, to stay with her abuser. Like, that's insane. That would, that's, and that's a, it's a terrible way to treat another human being who is made in the image of God. And so the value and dignity that they have should lead our hearts to say, what can I do to help you get to safety? Uh, and we've, we've had to help women at the church, on the church level, a number of times do that. I think we've done that with varying degrees of, of effectiveness and help. And, but we've, we've, we've meant well, even if we stumbled along the way, because these are very tricky things, and, and there's not always a clear-cut thing happening that we can see. So... Um, but, but the key is that I think at the very least, whether divorce is permissible in this case or not, um, clearly um, seeking, seeking safety is the key in this. And so we can start there and I think allow uh, for time um, and space to figure out what our next steps are in that, in that situation. So um, as you... Uh, encounter people who are struggling with these things. I, I would just encourage you to to be um, to to basically err on the side of caution with this, and not just assume uh, that oh that that guy could never do that. He's just such an upstanding person. Like no, people are people are sick and and people are sinners, and so we should just err on the side of caution and help uh, when we're asked to help at the very least. So that's that's one thing. And again, I, I know I'm not touching on everything that needs to be touched on here. Um, but for the sake of time, we've we got to keep rolling. So uh, I think the key in this is that divorce um, is never the goal. It's never the, the intention. God's intention is lifelong monogamous marriage that reflects him and his church. We do live in a broken world, and that's not always how it plays out. There are some situations where divorce is unavoidable. So in that case, we, we need to walk with um, biblical eyes, with, with uh, clarity. Jesus does acknowledge that divorce is a reality, so we, we can recognize that too. But if you need more information on this or are just interested in it, there's a, there's a book by a guy named Jay Adams. Um, it's called A Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage in the Bible. Um, it's, it's a resource you can, you can take a look at if you I want to jump on Amazon or whatever and 
get a copy of that. He's going to have a much, much bigger um, addressing of these issues than, than I did. But we got to keep rolling. So um, the, the, the next thing I wanted to deal with here is, um, is the issue of pornography. Um, this is a huge problem culturally. Uh, it's a huge problem in the, in the church. Um, it, it's a huge problem everywhere. But there, there is um, a moral issue with pornography. And a lot of times pornography is seen as a lesser issue because it's, it only affects the one person. So we, so we convince ourselves. Um, but the, the moral issue of pornography is that the primary purpose of it is to arouse a person's sexual desire that are, that's contrary to God's moral standards, which is sexual desire for someone other than your spouse. Um, if you're not married, it's, it's still sinful to engage in, the, in pornographic viewing because uh, like, like the sin of fornication, uh, that, that is outside of God's intention for sexual relationship, which is meant to be within the context of marriage. So once we've seen that that's the issue, that that's the underlying problem, is that we are, we are using some other source to, to seek sexual desire that is meant to be directed at our spouse. When we see that is the issue, then, it, then it's evident that creating or using pornography is morally wrong. Um, because the purpose of creating or using pornography is to arouse your sinful desires to, uh, in your heart or mind that displeases God. So um, we, we need to talk through this, I think, because it's, it's a big thing. It's a huge problem. Uh, it's not, the church is not immune from it. In fact, the church is probably just as hopelessly stuck in it as, as the world is statistically. Um, and, and obviously the, the biggest problem, the reason why that's the case is because of the ease of access to it on our smartphones. Um, but let me just walk you through a few of the uh, harmful effects that pornography causes. Um, there's a lot of them. Probably can't touch on all of them. But uh, the first one is clearly spiritual harm. There is a spiritual harm that comes from viewing pornography because the lustful desire that it arouses uh, is considered by Jesus to be adultery in a person's heart. Jesus says that in Matthew 5.28. And so if if the issue is really, if the issue of the commandment of do not commit adultery is broader than just the physical act of adultery, but extends to the person's heart, your intention uh, to look at a woman with lustful intent or to look at a man with lustful intent, because um, it is an issue that exists among women as well, all the, much less so. Um, but either way, if, that, if that's the intention of the heart, then uh, by putting our heart towards something that is outside of God's will is clearly spiritually harmful. Um, the awareness of this sin will bring a sense of distance between you and God. Uh, Psalm 66, 18 says, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. So the key there is if we cherish iniquity in our hearts. When we commit iniquities, we should be quick to repent of them and hate it. We should hate our sin. But if we love our sin, if we're cherishing our sin, then, then there is a clear disconnect between us and, and the Lord. And that's what the scriptures teach us. So to, to love uh, our, uh, our use of pornographic material is, is cherishing the iniquity in our hearts. And we need to 
repent of that and turn, turn back to him. In addition, pornography is spiritually deceptive uh, because it, its, its initial attractiveness will never satisfy and will never lead to a deep spiritual joy or happiness that can only come from a relationship with God. So we're, we're deceived and we're con- convinced that by going to this source uh, of whatever we think is going to bring us joy, it, it just never actually does. It never accomplishes its purpose. It sucks us in and it's, it's, um, it's ultimately just destructive. You know, uh, one, of the, one of the pastors that I used to listen to uh, years back used the analogy of uh, the springs of living water in Christ versus drinking from the toilet, right? And you have, you have two choices in, in this. And where, where are you going for your satisfaction, for your, for your sustenance in your life, if you're using water as an analogy for that? Um, David talks about the joy we should be pursuing when he writes in uh, Psalm 16, in your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand is pleasures are pleasures forevermore. So because pornography can never provide you with the deep, lasting joy that God can, it can snare you and entrap you, and you just keep pursuing more and more because you're, you're looking for something that it can't deliver. The second thing that pornography does clearly is harm marriages and other relationships, but particularly marriages. I can't, I mean, I can't even tell you how many people I've met with over the years who are having marriage struggles and it it stems from this it stems from the husband most of the time the husband uh not always but mostly um pursuing pornography being caught in that and then it just like adultery it breaks this trust um a significant impact of pornography is that it attracts a person's affections and desires away from his or her spouse and in the direction outside of your marriage. So a man who uses pornography is robbing his wife of emotional affection that should be hers. He's turning his heart away from her and desiring uh, her affection. This, this is going to hinder their sexual relationship within marriage. Um, it's going to create harmful memories that will last a long time. Um, the, there's nothing but bad here as far as the relationship dynamics. And and the the amazing thing that most most men there's like this circular thing that happens with men. It's uh, they don't feel sexually satisfied in their marriage, so they go to pornography to meet that that desire, and then that just in turn t- makes them less desirous of their wife, which then in turn makes them not have a sexual relationship that's satisfying. It's just a vicious cycle. It's a, it's a wicked thing. And it, it does damage relationships and marriage particularly. Um, it also gives us a distorted view and attitude towards sex itself. Um, there is an abundance of evidence from sociological studies uh, that show the harmful effects of pornography on those who view it uh, and then uh, on those who are subsequently harmed by these people. So I don't often quote a lot of psychologists, but there's a psychologist named uh, Patrick Fagan who, who states that pornography hurts adults, children, couples, families, and society. Among adolescents, pornography hinders the development of a healthy sexuality. And among adults, it distorts sexual attitudes and social realities. 
In families, pornography use, use leads to marital dissatisfaction, infidelity, separation, and divorce. Society at large is not immune to the effects of pornography because child sex offenders, for example, are often involved not only in the viewing but also in the distribution of pornography. So, so this psychologist, Patrick Fagan, he, would, he said that it just trickles all the way down uh, through, through society. It, it is not a harmless thing. Fourthly, uh, there is a significant possibility of addiction. Um, a Victor Klein, who's an author and an expert on sexual addiction, uh, he found this four-step progression among many who consume pornography. So there's this, this addictive uh, progression. Um, starts with this uh, pornography provides a powerful sexual stimulant. Uh, this would be a, a dopamine kind of reaction in the brain, followed by a sexual release, uh, which then leads to escalation, which builds over time, requiring more explicit material to meet their needs. Uh, then a desynthesization, can't say that word, um, which is so what you first perceive as gross or shocking or disturbing eventually becomes common and accepted, which then leads you into darker forms of pornography. And then the fourth uh, step here is the uh, acting out sexually, that there's an increased tendency to act out behaviors that are viewed in pornography, uh, which can lead to sexual abuse or rape. I mean, there's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of this issue among criminals uh, who who start down down this cycle, and so it it's not to say that everyone who views pornography is going to become the the darkest wickedest person on the earth, but you're opening yourself up to that, and so and so even if you can kind of maintain a little bit of control over it, which is good, but it's not it's not the goal. Like to be addicted to this is uh, is a da- dangerous thing. There's also harm to communities from pornography, and this is sort of a simple thing, I guess, but it's worth noting that there were some land use studies done by the National Law Center for Children and Families that show evidence of a correlation between adult businesses, which would be pornographic stores, and crime. So, for example, in a Phoenix neighborhood where adult businesses were located, the number of sex offenses in that neighborhood was 506% greater than in areas without that business, those businesses. Uh, the number of pro- property crimes was 43% greater and the number of violent crimes 4% greater. So there's, there seems to be some studies that in, indicate that where you have a lot of pornographic uh, availability through the stores, which obviously is kind of a moot thing now with the internet and but it, it does actually lead to actual harm in communities too. Um, child pornography is is another key crucial problem with pornography, and um, obviously the production of child pornography is illegal. It, it's still illegal uh, for now, at least, and that's good. But it doesn't stop you know underground um, people from doing it. Um, it there was. Uh, guy here in Anago that about probably seven or eight years ago got arrested by the FBI for uh, producing child pornography right across the street from Peace Lutheran Church. Uh, my wife worked there a number of years ago, and she got to watch the whole thing go down. It was pretty, pretty wild. Um, uh, but, he, you know, he was discovered for having 
made this material with his own children as the source. Um, I actually worked with the guy's wife at one point in, at Walmart. I mean, it's just a heartbreaking thing. So even in a small community like this, this is a thing. It And it's it's terrible and destructive. And that whole family is just ruined, right? I mean, the guy's obviously rotting in jail, which is where he belongs. Uh, but his wife is still harmed and his children have obviously have lasting harm um, and there's tragic results. So uh, again, Klein, the guy cited a minute ago, he says that it's mainly pedophiles who create true child pornography using children. And they do this for their own use as well as to exchange and sell the material that they produce. So when this occurs, the, the children are doubly abused. At the time the films or videos are produced, um, and then when they are observed later, um, when and so the victimization that that they face can last for years, um, and and there's just a lot of shame and guilt that that these children carry. It is it is not something to just be, you know, just brushing off. It is a very wicked evil, and it needs to be dealt with. And I think obviously I think most. Of at least most of the men that I that I've met with and have talked to about these issues, would not be uh, addressing the child pornography issue in their lives. That's not where they're going, thankfully. But again, these are they're slippery slopes that we're opening ourselves up to as we consume it. Um, pornography consumption among Christians, in particular, is at an all time high. I, I believe I don't know that there's statistics that I can back that up with, but from my own uh, just you know anecdotal. Uh, research and looking at it it's like yeah it's it's a problem that touches a lot of men a lot of men most men probably these days um it's done a ton of damage to marriages to men themselves to churches but there is hope in the gospel there is freedom in christ from these things Uh, i'm grateful to to hear whenever a man recognizes the sin in it and and seeks to to change and seeks to change by the power of the gospel. It's a beautiful thing. And we've got a number of guys who are walking through that in, in this church. And, and I know in many other churches, it's, it's starting to happen, which is great. Um, but there is a book a resource. Again, this is um, probably just a small um, overview of this issue, but the book uh, that just came out a couple years ago, maybe a year ago, it's by Ray Ortland. Um, was an incredible guy, great, great pastor. He wrote this, he's now retired from the full-time ministry, but he wrote this book uh, called The Death of Porn. And the subtitle is Men of Integrity Building a World of Nobility. Um, I have a stack of these on my desk. So if you if you want one, I will give it to you without any shame or guilt. And so um, I, I I literally have them there just to give to guys who who need it. So feel free to Ask me for that, and there's no shame in that. Uh, but it's a it's a short read. It's an easy read, but it's it, it points you to the one who can actually help you. Um, I know a lot of I've talked to other guys who are like, well, I've tried all the self help things, and I, I always push back and go, well, this isn't self help. This is Jesus can help. Like that's what you need. You need Jesus's help, not your own help. So um, so there you go. Uh, if you guys need anything like that, please, or if you know somebody who needs it, I'll. You can, you can claim it's for a friend. That'll work too. Um, but there's that. Um, all right, one, one more topic here. We've got about 40 minutes till we get to the top of the hour. I think we'll get through this uh, in this time with plenty of time for questions. But 
this is going to be uh, obviously dealing with some stuff that's just like in front of us all the time culturally. So let me just start by, by just asking for um, a sense of uh, grace and graciousness if you have questions and want, I want to engage with you guys on these things, um, but we just need to be be mindful. I will turn off the recording too, by the way, during the question section, just because this is going to go on the internet and we, I'm okay with what I have to say going on the internet, but I, I know some of you guys might not. So we will, we'll turn it off for the question section, but um, I, I want to talk through this LGBTQ issue because it has become such a massive cultural thing um, that it's, it's, un, it's unavoidable. It's undeniable in our society. So we need to think through it biblically. Um, LGBTQ is an acronym. It stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer. And there's also a plus typically at the end of this because they're adding things all the time. And I, but, this, but just for the sake of not having to say plus every time I use this in an acronym, uh, that's what we're talking about. So this is a political and social coalition of people who would identify as and practice sexuality outside of what is referred to as heteronormative relationships. So that's kind of a silly way of saying people who are, you know, attracted to uh, the opposite gender, the opposite sex, who are in, you know, marriages that are men and women, they would call this heteronormative relationships. And they sort of say it as a, as a slang or, an, or a negative thing. But the LGBTQ coalition is basically a, combination of any, anyone who would be kind of a sexual minority, so to speak. Um, this is a real tangled web of issues. It's, um, we can't address everything in here uh, in great detail. Um, but I think what we need to do is kind of get our heads around this, because we're, we're actually, with this acronym, we're dealing with two completely separate things. Uh, you, you have, on one hand, you have the L, G, and B, which deals with more or less same-sex attraction. So uh, a, a man would be attracted sexually to other men. A woman would f- be sexually attracted to other women. Uh, the B is bisexual, so you, you would be attracted to both, um, what, what you are and what's not you. And so those all kind of are in the same general category. Uh, in fact, I've heard a lot of, uh, not a lot of, I've, I've heard some uh, members of the, uh, gay community or lesbian community um, actually sh- talk a little bit of resentfully about the T and the Q being attached to this because they would be like, we have as much to do with a transgender person as anybody else. Like, where They would even see that this is not like exactly a, a, a perfect coalition, but they're, they're just trying to put as much uh, minorities together as they can to be a political force. And so there is becoming some pushback um, even among the LGBTQ stuff, mostly from the LGB side of it that are kind of going, we don't want to be attached to the T side of it. So that'll be interesting to see how that plays out. But we'll deal with the LGB first, um, and then we'll deal with the T and the Q because they're dealing with different things. Rather than same-sex attraction, the T and the Q deals with gender identity, like not just who you're sexually attracted to, although there, there's obviously some overlap in that, um, but, but there's a, it's a whole different issue. It really is. The transgender issue is completely different, and it has to be dealt with in a different category. So 
let's just start with some establishment of what the Bible teaches about LGBTQ together, and then we'll d- divvy them up into their parts. Um, let's establish these, these realities. As, as, as I'm teaching this from a biblical worldview, um, God's design for human sexual conduct is to con- uh, occur within the context of a monogamous marriage, right? Between one man and one woman. That, we've already established that. Like we've spent the last hour and a half talking about that. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Differentiation of the human race into two complementary sexes, male and female, is the first fact that we're given in the scriptures connecting us with the image of God. So this is foundational to who we are as image bearers of God. We are male and female. So that's, that needs to be put in front of us. Um, the reality of these two complementary sexes for God's intention for marriage and for God's intention for humanity and human sexuality in general is the foundational biblical ethic uh, on, on LGBTQ issues. If we don't start with that, then again, we're just going to be playing whack-a-mole. We're not going to be able to counter every argument. We've got to start with the foundation of what did God design human beings to be? And how did, they, how did he design human beings to live in relationship with one another? And, and we, we've got to start there. And obviously the worldview of people in the LGBTQ camp would, would be different than ours as Christians. Um, and they would be coming at it from a different perspective and a different place, a starting place. But as Christians, we have to embrace the, the biblical teaching and, and God's intention for uh, human sexuality and marriage. So let's address the, the LGB side of it first before we get to the T. And, and this is going to be really brief. I'm just going to be honest. Like I'm not going to, because I think the T side of it needs to spend, we need to spend a little more time there. Um, I'm just going to give you some very basic things on the lesbian, gay, and bisexual issue. Not that it's not important and not that there's not more that can be said, because a lot more can be said. But simply put, on the very just basic level, uh, on the issue of same-sex relationships, we need to see that the Bible views it as a sin, something contrary to God's will. Uh, it is not presented as an ideal. It's not presented as a good. It is presented as uh, a distortion of God's intention for human sexuality. That doesn't mean that the people who are engaged in it are not loved by him. It doesn't mean that they don't have value and dignity and worth as an image bearer of God. It does mean that they are living contrary to God's will, though. And so we need to be honest about that and recognize it. It is referred to as a sin and, and inferred as a sin in both the Old and New Testaments. And a lot of times people uh, in the lesbian, gay, and bisexual community will, will argue that, well, there's only one verse in the whole Bible that even talks about homosexuality. Not true. Not true. It's, it, that is a mischaracterization or a misunderstanding. But the one that they always go to is Leviticus 20.13, uh, the Old Testament passage there. And then they will also note that that's the same chapter where we're told not to eat shellfish. And so they'll say, well, if, we, if you can eat shellfish now, then why can't, we can't, why can't we have homosexual relationships? 
Well, that just fundamentally misunderstands the rest of the teaching of the Bible on this issue, which is that Genesis 19 addresses it in a narrative way. Jude 1.7 addresses it. Romans 1.26 and 27 clearly address it in, in a way that leads to idolatry and sinfulness. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6.9, um, which I'll talk a little bit about in a moment, that, that is in homosexuality is listed within the list of sins and works of the flesh that Paul uh, lays out. And so it's clearly mentioned in more than just one place. And I know that it's always that argument that, well, it's just mentioned that one place and it's in the context of a, you know, you can't eat shellfish. So that's, it is true that it's in that same passage. But if that was the only passage that dealt with it, as they say, then yeah, they might have an argument to make. Um, maybe. But you still have to deal with the foundational intentional design of man and woman and creation. So uh, I don't know that they would even have a leg to stand on there, but, but obviously it's mentioned elsewhere beyond just Leviticus. Um, God's word also shows us that the sin of homosexuality has a solution. Like I said, this is going to be real quick. Um, the solution is to trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sin the imputation of righteousness and the power to change. And this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. In verse 9, he lists these works of the flesh. He lists these sins that we're being engaged in. And homosexuality is one of many in that list. And then in verse 10, he says, but you were washed, you were cleansed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of Jesus Christ. And so what that teaches us, just those two verses together shows us that not just homosexuality, it's not pointed out exclusively on its own. It's, it's in a list of many other sins and many sins that you and I would commit on a regular basis, right? And so it, it's, that shows us one thing, that homosexuality, while it, for those of us who are in the heteronormative camp, uh, we, would, we would see it as a, as a real problem and, and we, we kind of get perhaps grossed out by it or whatever, but the fact is, is that it's a sin like every other sin. It really isn't listed as this unique thing. It, it, it's a sin that Christ can uh, deal with and change us in and, and work his righteousness and power to change. That's crucial. Um, and, and I'm, I'm going to point you to a few book resources in a minute on this that deliberately goes against the idea that, that homosexuals, those who are struggling with same-sex attraction, uh, can't change. It's like a, it's a common thing that we're being told now is, well, you can't change. And if you try to change, you're, you know, we're going to arrest the people who are trying to change you and all these things. And like there is some real sad, scary things coming down the pipe and, and what they call conversion therapy, or, which is just a Christian pastor or friend trying to help somebody change. Um, it's, real, it's really messy, and I get that. Um, they're trying to bully the church out of um, doing this work of redemption. But there are many, many examples of men and women who came out of same-sex attraction uh, and sinfulness that are now embracing Christ. And, and not all of them are like moving into this fairy tale, oh, I got married and now I have a thousand kids and it, it's wonderful. Some of them are staying single and living celibate lives and don't have necessarily their desires changing towards the opposite sex, but their behaviors are changing because of Christ and they're they're walking in holiness in that regard. So I think we... We need to recognize that there's, um, there are people who are attracted uh, to same sex. There's a same sex attraction. I think 
that that doesn't go against the theology that I that I would hold to as seeing a world that is broken by sin. Like attractions are broken by sin. So for some people to struggle with that would be perfectly normal in my book as far as what the Bible teaches about sin. But what's more important is that Christ brings forgiveness for those who turn from their sin and turn to him. So real quickly, this is, again, like I said, we're not going to deal deeply on, the, on this LGB issue. To summarize it is just that homosexual conduct of, of all kinds is consistently viewed in the Bible as sin. Sexual intimacy is meant to be confined to a marriage, and a marriage is to be between one man and one woman. Well, this is all the stuff we've, we've covered. Um, this follows the pattern of God in his creation. So the church should respond with love and compassion towards people who struggle with homosexuality. But we should never affirm homosexuality as morally right. Um, the gospel of Jesus Christ offers us good news, offers them good news of forgiveness from uh, the death of Christ, like it does for all sinners. Um, but the church, I think, needs to be more hospitable uh, towards people struggling with same-sex attraction, not for the purpose of embracing their lifestyle, but for the purpose of pointing them to a savior who can actually draw them in. I, th- I think that's one of the things you see as the as the pattern or or kind of the at least the anecdotal pattern of the people who come out of uh, same-sex relationships and embrace Christ, um, they're doing so because Christians are loving them and and caring for them and showing them uh, the way to Jesus, Um, but while not embracing the sin. So here are three books. Each of these are written by people who either have been... uh, it had been in uh, same-sex relationships or deal with same-sex attraction, um, but are living celibate lives. And so the first one here is by Sam Alberry. He's a, a British guy. Um, he wrote a book called Is God Anti-Gay? Um, and other questions about homosexuality, the Bible, and same-sex attraction. He's a man who has publicly said that he he struggles with same-sex attraction, but he's a single man. He's living a life that uh, is honoring to God. He's not engaging in, in, in those activities. Um, he's a pastor. He's serving a church, he, and, he's, and he's doing really well. And he writes quite a bit on these issues because he understands them and um, has been walking through them. The second one is by Jackie Hill Perry, uh, who uh, wrote a book called Gay Girl, Good God, uh, which is her story of who she was and how God always and who God has always been is the subtitle there. So um, again, if that's more of a, a, a biographical story of her, her journey out of same-sex attraction and, and life into the life she lives now with, with Christ. And then the third one is by Rosaria uh, Butterfield. Uh, and she's written a number of books. This is just one of them. Um, this is called Openness Unhindered, uh, which I think the subtitle says, Further Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, about uh, sexual identity and union with Christ. So she, um, she was also living uh, as a lesbian for a long time in her life. She was a professor at Syracuse University in the literature department, um, was just steeped in that lifestyle, steeped in that ideology. And it was her story is amazing because 
her story landed her um, to interview a pastor. Uh, she was doing research as an academic about evangelical subculture or something. And she just started to meet with this pastor and his wife. And through that relationship, God drew her to himself, which is just an awesome thing. So that she's got a number of books, uh, but, but that's one of them. So those, those three would be great, great starting points if you're interested in this. And I know I'm not touching on it with the depth that I should, but I want to deal with uh, the T and the Q side of it, because I think this is probably the thing that, um, at least right now, culturally, is like the, the moment we're living in. And it's like, what do we do with this? This is, this is a whole different world than what we, we thought we'd be living in. So I think it's worth spending a little time here. Uh, uh, so some people today, and it seems like it's an ever-growing number of people, uh, claim to be transgender, uh, which is that they think of themselves or they identify as having a gender that is different from their biological sex. So trans is the uh, a suffix, or I think that's what it is, uh, that means apart from, right? So to be transgender means you're living apart from your gender, it's like there's a disconnect there. But that they would identify as the opposite gender in most cases. So a biological male may claim to identify as a female, or a biological female may claim to identify as a male. These claims are based on an assumption that isn't, it is an assumption, it's not, it's not actually factual, uh, but the assumption is, is that gender is something that people can choose, not something that's determined by the biological sex of their bodies. And so um, what I want to do is just give, or attempt to give, a brief biblical perspective on this issue. The first we've already established, uh, but it's worth repeating here, it's that God created only two sexes, male and female. We saw it at the beginning. We've seen it a hundred times already tonight, that God made man, man and woman in his image with equal value in personhood, but distinct in their sexuality that men and women are complementary in their physical bodies and in their, the way they look at the world. We're complementary to one another. And God made us with these two distinctives, male and female. Um, on the scientific level, I think it's worth noting here, just as kind of a, an aside a little bit, that men and women have a lot of similarities, of course, um, we're, but we're also different in a lot of ways even on to the uh, cellular level. So the human body has about 37.2 trillion cells. And these cells, except for the red blood cells, are different in men and women. The reason for that is because men have two X chromosomes, uh, or excuse me, I'm sorry, an X and a Y chromosome. I need to go back to biology. And, the, and also learn how to read. Uh, and uh, women have two X chromosomes in each cell. So in other words, if we take away the roughly 10 trillion uh, red blood cells in our body, at the cellular level, there is still 27 trillion biological differences between men and women. And you just can't, you, like, you can't actually get past that issue. And that's what, it's just so perplexing, I think, in our day, because people who would claim that science is what their God is are, are so quick to ignore scientific realities. Um, that, that you can't deny. But they would say that that's true of sex, it's not true of gender. So to be fair to them, um, they, would, they would argue that gender is apart or different from 
biological sex. Um, but there are also, uh, there's also physical differences between men and women. There's, there's differences in the wiring of our brains, um, the arrangement of various connections between different parts of the brain. We have differences in ways that we process information. So uh, neuropsychiatrist Luann uh, Brizendine of the University of California, San Francisco, not exactly the most conservative university in the world, um, she writes that scientists have discovered an astonishing array of structural, chemical, genetic, hormonal, and functional brain differences between men and women. The female and male brains process stimuli, hear, see, sense, and gauge what others are feeling in different ways. And I think we all kind of, we all kind of get that intuitively, right? Men and women are different, and that's that's borne out by the scientific reality of of our biology and our molecular or, or uh, yeah genetic levels. So so that's that's kind of as as an aside. But the 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 deeper thing I want to get to is that God intends, and the Word of God is clear on this: that God intends that a person's gender identity should be determined by a person's biological sex. There, there's no hint anywhere in Scripture that a biological woman should identify as a man or attempt to act in ways that are perceived as appropriate only for men and likewise um, uh, for, for the other, right? There's no, there's no hint that men should identify as women or act in ways that would be perceived as appropriate only for women, Instead, there are actually a multiple, there are multiple passages that assume, even if it doesn't directly like command it, it assumes that someone is either a man or a woman. It's just sort of a baseline understanding of this in the scriptures. Uh, and that society regularly will be able to know the difference between men and women. So here's, here's a list of some of the passages that infer this and teach this and show us this. It's Leviticus whole bunch in Leviticus, Leviticus 12, 2 through 5, 18, 22, 20, 13, 27, 2. And then you get to Numbers 27, 8, 9, and 30, 2 and 3. Deuteronomy 20, 13, Deuteronomy 22, 5. Romans 1, 26 and 27. 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 11. 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 12. 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2. And then Titus 2, two through six, and I did that for the benefit of the recording and not for you guys who can clearly see. Um, but um, so we, as you read those passages, uh, Christians today can, can ponder the meaning of those passages or we may even disagree over what the proper application of them is in the New Covenant age. Are some of them, like especially the Leviticus passages, are they still binding today? We can argue those things. But the point I'm seeking to establish here is just that Scripture repeatedly distinguishes between men and women. It assumes that people will be able to tell the difference between men and women. And, um, and And it assumes that in several ways, men and women will act differently in ways appropriate for their sex. In all of these passages, it's assumed that a person's biological sex determines how the person should act, um, that is, in ways appropriate to each person's sex, whether male or female. And every person's, sen- every person's sense of his or her own gender identity should be the same as that of their biological sex. 
So of all those passages, I, I want to pull out one of those and look at it a little bit more specifically, because I think this is probably the closest one that we get to on this issue of transgenderism in the Bible. Uh, Deuteronomy 22.5 is a passage of special importance on this debate. Um, here's, here's the passage. It's just one verse. It says, A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Okay, so again, we can, we can argue about this. And obviously there are some Christian communities that would say that means women must wear dresses all the time because that's what women wear and men wear pants and women don't wear... We're not... No, okay. I would not hold that perspective and most of you wouldn't either. And that's okay. Like, but, but let's talk about what this passage is getting us to. And, I, and I'm not going to take any credit for this. This is all from an Old Testament professor named... Ed. Jason DeRochi, um, who published a really perceptive analysis of this verse uh, as it relates to transgenderism uh, today. And so I think it's worth looking at a little, with a little depth his argument. And this, so again, this is not me. I didn't pull this out, but I, I think it's worth sharing with you guys. So uh, DeRoche recognizes that, that this law is found in the Mosaic Law. We're no longer under the Mosaic Covenant. He acknowledges that. Um, so he's not saying that, we have, that we're legally bound to the Mosaic law. But we also don't throw out the law itself. Uh, this this uh, professor carefully analyzes the meaning of the command in the light of Christ's redemptive work and our position in the new covenant age. The Mosaic law still has theological significance, and we can learn from it about God and his ways. So while the back, while the, with this background, DeRoshi says that on the surface, the prohibition relates to what the American Psychological Association, or APA, terms gender expression, the way a person acts to communicate gender within a given culture through things like dress. Then he, then he says that at a deeper level, however, the law assumes a more fundamental rule, that there are only two biological sexes, male and female, and that what is gender normative in God's world is that one's biological sex should govern both one's gender identity and expression. Before divine wrath is poured out, this text provides a kind of corrective to gender confusion and transgender identity. He continues, from God's perspective, maleness and femaleness bears implications beyond the home or gathered worshiping community. It also impacts daily life and society. Within Israelite culture then, there were certain styles of dress, ornaments, or items that distinguished men and women. As such, two things appear to be at stake in this law. One is everyone needed to let their gender expression align with their biological sex. And two, everyone needed to guard against gender confusion, wherein others could wrongly perceive a man to be a woman and a woman to be a man based on how they dress. So uh, with respect to the last phrase of Deuteronomy 22.5, which says whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord, uh, DeRoshi concludes that blurring the distinction between men and women in society undermines the ability of men, men and women to rightly reflect the nature of God. What makes transgenderism abominable is that it maligns humanity's ability 
to reflect, resemble, and represent God rightly in this world. Why is this? Well, it's because both the Old and New Testament pictures the relationship between God and his people as a relationship between a husband and his bride. It's an analogy in which a man represents God and a woman represents God's people. The God-given differences between men and women are necessary for that reflection of God's glory to be seen in human activity. So by way of practical application, De Rochi says, as believers, we should be among those who celebrate men being masculine and women being feminine, both in the way we act and in the way we dress. And of course, we can be sensible about that, right? We don't, we don't need to go totally crazy legalistic overboard on what we wear. But there should be, we should celebrate that men are men and women are women. These are good things. This is not something to turn our nose up at. Like both men and women represent God's image. So let's get into some practical things here uh, real quick. The first one that always comes up on this discussion is, should we call a boy she and a girl he? What about the pronouns? Um, this, is a, this is a big thing right now because the mainstream media and things on social media are just getting really wild on this. And um, the, the, the norm is that the biological or the pronouns that people use are the pronouns that are preferred by the person. Uh, so in the case of Bruce Jenner, he's a good example of this. Um, and you just see I, I misgendered him, right? Um, but, but Bruce Jenner, uh, Caitlyn Jenner, as, as he's known now, uh, he's, he's actually a conservative Republican. He's, he's like on Fox News all the time. Um, I'm disappointed in, in some of those anchors uh, for indulging this. But he, uh, you know, he, he clearly is identifying as a woman. He wants to be referred to as her and she. And um, like, that's just one example in kind of the mainstream media. And most, most people on television, for the sake of not being you know, attacked by, by people uh, uh, you know, publicly, they, they've just kind of given into this. So what, what should we as Christians do? Like, I don't think we have to be jerks about this. I really don't. But I think there is something deeper happening. And Wayne Grudem helps, I think, with this. Um, he says, this is something I, I do not think Christians should do, meaning using the pronouns that don't assign to the person's biological sex. And he says, it's something that I in good conscience cannot do. This is the pressure of society attempting to force me to affirm a lie to affirm that a man is actually now a woman, but this is false. If he was born a male, he's always been a male, and he will always be a male. Therefore, I believe we should refer to him with the pronouns he and him. I, he says, I know it's hard, uh, a hard thing today because people will attack you. But as Christians, we are called to affirm the truth and not lies. Now, this gets really sticky because on, on a, you know, okay, I don't know Bruce Jenner. I, I don't, no, or Caitlyn Jenner, whatever. I, I mean, okay, he, he's going by Caitlyn, but I don't, I don't know this, this person. So I'm never going to like interact uh, with him on that level, but most of us eventually are going to know somebody who is in this boat. It's going to happen. Uh, a, a, a friend of mine from many years ago just did this whole big thing where he's now transitioning to be a woman, live as a woman, identify as a woman. And, and I don't, haven't seen him in many years, but I'm like, that's, that's a really 
difficult place to be because I care about him as a person. Um, I also don't want to embrace a lie, right? So there, this, this is tricky, and I get that. And and there can be uh, there can be real world consequences to this too, in in terms of work and in terms of you know, especially if we're working in the public sphere or in government uh, or in schools. I mean, so it, it's a real thing, and it's I think it's something that we've got to try to come to a conviction on. Um, but I I don't think Christians have the uh, the calling from God. I know we don't have the calling from God to embrace lies. So however we try to navigate through that issue is going to be difficult. But uh, but I think we, we have a, an obligation to, to um, affirm what's true. Uh, I came across this uh, article today, actually. Um, so I added this in. Um, but there's a, there is a deeper issue as to why someone wants to identify as a gender they are not. There is. There are deeper issues. And it's a complex thing, for sure. There's no one-size-fits-all. But, but typically what we're seeing is that transgenderism stems from a root issue of either trauma, abuse, or mental disorders. And there's a, there's a woman named Jamie Reed who describes herself... This is literally how she described herself at the beginning of her article, as a queer woman politically to the left of Bernie Sanders. Okay. Um, but she, she addresses, she writes this whole article, just within the last couple of days she wrote this, uh, about her experience working in a pediatric gender clinic in St. Louis. And I think it's worth reading just a couple paragraphs out of that article, and I'll share the title with it with you in a minute so you can look it up if you want to read the whole thing. It's worth a read. Um, but here's what she observed working in this gender clinic. In 2015 or so, across the Western world, there began to be a dramatic increase in a new population. Teenage girls, many with no previous history of gender distress, suddenly declared that they were transgender and demanded immediate treatment with testosterone. The girls who came to us had many comorbidities, depression, anxiety, ADHD, eating disorders, obesity. Many were diagnosed with autism or had autism-like symptoms. A report last year on a British uh, pediatric transgender uh, center found that about one-third of the patients referred there were on the autism spectrum. Frequently, our patients declared that they had disorders that no one believed that they had. Said uh, We had patients who said they had Tourette's syndrome, but they didn't. They had, dis- they had tick disorders, but they didn't. They, that they had multiple personalities, but they didn't. The doctors privately recognized these false diagnoses as a manifestation of social contagion. And now I'm adding this. What that means is influenced by social media. Okay? So the doctors are going, they're saying they have schizophrenia, but that's not true. What that is is social contagion, that they're picking this stuff up from social media. Okay, back to the article. It says, they even acknowledge that suicide has an element of social contagion. But when I, the, the author of this, said the clusters of girls streaming into our service looked as if their gender issues might be manifestations of social contagion, the doctor said, 
gender identity reflected something innate. Um, so that's an excerpt from Jamie Reed. She wrote the article. Um, the, the article is called, I Thought I Was Saving Trans Kids, Now I'm Blowing the Whistle. <clears throat> really good, really good. It's worth a read in, in total. But, but so she's identifying something, at least anecdotally, she's acknowledging that most of the time that these, it's mostly teen girls, which is actually extremely rare throughout history. Most, mostly gender dysphoria has presented in men up until very recently, within like the last five years. Now we're seeing a massive influx of mostly teenage girls identifying as transgender. And as she acknowledged in this, most of them had a comorbidity of some kind, whether that was a body issue from obesity or uh, depression or ADHD or, or autism. Uh, there was something underlying this, and the doctors were just unwilling to even go there with her. And so she wrote this article and is really risking the, probably the rest of her career in whatever whatever she does, which is going to be interesting. And she is not a Christian. I uh, just want to be clear on that. Okay, Not a Christian. Uh, she's very clear about that, too. Um, so how should we as Christians deal with this? I think just generally. Um, it's a hard thing, and it's going to be, continue to be a hard thing. But as Christians, I think we actually should be the most sympathetic people with this. Here's why. Here's what I mean. Um, we have a Bible that tells us that sin has broken everything. Like our theology should tell us that this, of course, this is going to happen. People are going to be confused. People are going to be broken. People are broken. We're broken by sin when we're being redeemed by Jesus. But we should be so much more sympathetic towards the, the struggle that these people are facing. Again, just with the, the homosexuality issue, the same sex issue, we can't embrace what's not true. We can't we can't affirm that it's right. We can't just go, yeah, you live, you live your truth. We can't go there. But we must be compassionate. And, and we should pray that God can change, that he would change their hearts. He can. And, and we should seek that the Bible would help these people understand what gender means and how they should live within it. Again, it's a more complex issue than I can get all the way into here, but there's a couple, few resources I want to point you to on this one. Uh, one, I would point you to a man named Walt Heyer, or Heyer, I don't know, um, but H-E-Y-E-R, uh, for those of you online there. Um, Walt lived as a transgender woman for eight years. Um, in his 40s, he divorced his wife, left his children, decided to live his truth, and went through the surgeries lived for eight years uh, as a, a woman, um, a transgender woman. And he has now, um, well, he came to Christ. He, was, he met Jesus through the church, um, through Christians. He then reversed the, the op, you know, as much as he could. He said there are certain things that you can't get back, right? But he's detransitioned as is the term that he uses, um, he's back to living uh, biologically as, as a man. He's, um, and he's spending the rest of his life, he's probably in his 80s right now, uh, maybe 70s. Um, but he's living the rest of his life sharing his story of the regret, but also how the gospel of Christ can change 
a person's life. So just go on YouTube, you know, type in Walt Hayer. You'll find, you'll find videos of him sharing his story, um, at least for now, until they start taking it all down. But, you know, for now, it's still up there, um, as of yesterday, at least. So that's a good option. He's got some amazing stuff. He shares a lot. And one of the things that he identifies, and going back to the, the root issue here, is that his, his gender dysphoria started uh, as a result of child abuse. It started as a result of his grandmother when he was four years old, dressed him up as a girl, affirmed how beautiful he looked, and just snapped something in his brain, like just messed, messed up this little boy's life. Eventually, the, the boy's uh, parents found out about the dress and the, the whole thing and stopped letting him see grandma. And, uh, but just, I mean, that, that just ruined the trajectory of his life up until Christ met him. And so he, he talks a lot about how transgenderism just doesn't happen out of a vacuum. It happens out of pain. It happens out of some sort of a traumatic experience in most cases. There's also two books I would recommend for you. Um, one is Sam Alberry again. Uh, he wrote a book just in the last couple of years called What God Has to Say About Our Bodies. Um, this is not specifically on the trans issue, but it, he does touch on it. He addresses it. Um, but this is really helpful for all of us who have, you know, we have bodies that we're not always happy with. And, you know, what does God have to say about that, Right. So that's a great like kind of general book on the on the subject and it sort of deals with the the underlying issues. The other one is by a guy named Carl Truman. This is called Strange New World. Um and the subtitle is How Thinkers and Activists Redefined Identity and Sparked a Sexual Revolution. And so he's going to trace through historically how the thought leaders of the, the 19th and 20th centuries primarily um, led us to this place where we've just embraced culturally that people have embraced this whole new world. And so that's, if you're interested in kind of how we got here, that's a good book um, to read. So let me, let me just close it out with a, with a quote from this book by Sam Alberry because I think this, this quote just, I think it resonates with all of us and it certainly hits at the issue of this uh, transgenderism Sam writes in, in this, what does God have to say about our bodies? He says, in many cases, the brokenness is not so much the body itself, but how our experience has taught us to view the body. The brokenness of our culture, our family, our friends, friendship circle, our own distorted view of who we are, uh, who we are meant to be, and what we are meant to look like. All these things interact and contribute to our sense of shame. Underlying all of it uh, is our collective and individual turning away from God. Whatever relief and help we may be able to find from other places, we ultimately need to come back to God. And we shall see, uh, shall soon see the answer to all our bodily brokenness is the broken body of Jesus. And I think that that's, that's exactly what people who are struggling with transgender and identity issues in all of us, whether we do or not. We need to keep coming back to the, the broken body of Jesus Christ for our sins because that's where hope and healing can be found. So uh, I'll end it there. Uh, I'm going to turn off the recording and then I'll, I'll take questions or comments and we can go from there.